We continue our study in Luke's gospel today with the end of Luke chapter 8. So hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 8, beginning about verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me. For I perceive power going out from me. Now when the women, woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. When Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead, but he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, you are the God of life. You are the God of healing. You are the God of restoration. And in the works of your son Jesus, we see all of these things today. And so we call upon you and ask you to do these th same things for us through your word. We ask you to call us to life. We ask you to heal us. And we ask you to restore us. Uh, build us up. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us all with your Holy Spirit. And strengthen me as I work to deliver these things and articulate these things today. Strengthen me. Strengthen us all so that we might hear and receive and live by the things that you have said. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chances are you've read or heard this past week that the Food and Drug Administration has banned the sale of certain antibacterial agents in soaps because the industry has failed to prove that they're really all that much better in the long term than just washing your hands with uh, hot water and soap. There's, there's, in fact, no evidence that they're better than just basic hygiene. And in fact, they have the potential of causing more damage long term uh, uh, and, and harming us in ways that are worse than whatever we were trying to protect ourselves from by using the antibacterial things to begin with. One of the headlines I read uh, was titled, How the Germaphobes Are Making Us All Sick. Um, I thought that was a clever uh, headline. Because not only do certain of these chemicals get into our systems and stay there for a long time, but they might actually diminish our body's ability to fight off disease naturally. 
And of course, you have to wonder what kind of uh, super mutant bug are we breeding by killing off all of the, uh, all of the normal uh, easy-to-kill bugs. Now, now, I confess, even as I laugh about germophobia, if there's a spectrum of germophobia, I'm somewhere on the same side of Howard Hughes, probably. Uh, as some of you know, Howard Hughes was this crazy uh, uh, esoteric germaphobe. Um, I, it's just that I, I go out of my way to avoid sharing bacteria if I can help it. And I'm always thinking, if, if you touch that dirty thing to that clean thing, that clean thing is now corrupt, and I can't touch it, and I can't eat it. It's like when you pay for your lunch at the, at the uh, lunch counter or the restaurant, and the server takes your money, and then with the same hands that they've been handling everybody's money and credit cards, they go and touch your fries. You think, those fries are not edible now, right? I, I might as well be licking your hand as, as to eat those fries. That's normal, right? That's, that's okay. But please tell me I'm normal. But then you have to stop and realize, you have to stop and realize that every surface in the world is covered with nasty things that you can't see. And your body is designed by God with an immune system to attack those things. And I, I get it. You know, as long as it isn't cholera or the black plague on the shopping cart handle, I'll probably be okay, unless it's the Kerry Walmart. And then it's definitely cholera on the shopping cart handle. And you should never go there. But we need to remember that this is purely an American way and a modern way of looking at the world. People throughout most of the world and people throughout most of human history uh, don't think in terms of, of, of germs and bacteria. And, and, and in most, most of human history, we didn't have microscopes. We didn't have a full understanding of, of viruses and germs and bacteria. In fact, one of the most life-saving innovations over uh, the past few centuries is sanitation, clean water, waste disposal, and doctors who wash their hands have had an immense impact on the life and, and the quality of life throughout, throughout the world. But before that, they didn't really have a sense of what was making people sick and diseased. They had theories, it's, it's bad air, or you have uh, uh, imbalance in the, in the fluids in your body. But, so they didn't have a sense of that. And maybe today we've gone, however, too far the other direction, by being, uh, in, in some ways, germophobic, we're, we're in fact always sick and we have immune disorders because uh, our, our bodies now attack themselves, it seems. We've lowered our own body's ability to fight off bad things. Well, I, I bring this up because there was a similar kind of overcompensation in Jesus' day. Israel had an immune deficiency Disorder. They were, on the one hand, germaphobes who are worried about a certain kind of ritual purity, a certain kind of ritual cleanness. And on the other hand, they were demon-possessed. On the other hand, they were rife with sickness and, and spiritual defects. So, so on the one hand, they were so concerned about ritual purity. And on the other hand, when Jesus goes to the synagogue, he finds demons there. Well, you know, the reason that they had even started down the path of talking about and thinking about uh, ritual purity is because God had given them laws. God had given his people, through Moses, laws regarding purification and cleanliness, and these really set them apart from the pagans. He told them how to dig a latrine away from the camp. God's law talks about digging latrines away from the camp. There's a way to dispose of things. Uh, God's law says if a lizard jumps in your dish, 
No, wash it out. Wash out the dish. If you touch a dead animal, you need to be cleansed. If you have leprosy, the entire house needs to be purified. Now, the purification ritual that God prescribed in Leviticus involved making a sacrifice and then taking the ashes from the sacrifice and mixing them with water. But what happens when you take ashes, wood ash, and you mix it with water? What do you get? You get soap. You get lye soap. And then they were to cleanse themselves with that and with... Uh, and their, and, and their, bo- their bodies and their clothes as well. So there are all these cleansing rituals in the Bible uh, connected to different things that make you unclean. The process of conception and childbirth all makes you un- unclean. But these laws regarding the purification of uncleanness contained an, an element of, sa- of sanitation, certainly, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than simply those things are yucky or those things are uh, uh, nasty and we need to be cleansed of those. No, there's this whole other element. These things were meant to show Israel that in Adam and under Adam, death spreads, corruption spreads. And the only way that you can have life and the only way that you can have true uh, cleanness, true purity is an obedience to Yahweh in, in and at his holy temple following his law. So, so why are the processes and, the, and, the, and all of the things surrounding childbirth um, and fertility, why are these all in the category of unclean, ritualistically unclean? It's because uh, you do not create life even when you have children. Your children are born dead in Adam. And it's only when they're ritually cleansed and become part of Israel in covenant with God, it's only then that they have life. Well, this was all the sense and the meaning behind the purification rituals. Yes, there was a physical washing, absolutely. But there was also this important dimension of dealing with the corruption of sin and, and, and nearness to God as a result of, of being cleansed from your sin. Now, now in Jesus' day, of course, we all know these laws had become distorted and they had become burdensome and onerous and twisted out of shape by the first century uh, version of the, you know, germaphobes. They're like religious germaphobes. They, they miss the point of sin and corruption. Instead, ceremonial purity was a kind of elitist status symbol. The Jews were clean. The rest of the nations were unclean. To be unclean for whatever reason, whether it's your fault or not, to be unclean is in a way to, to be subhuman. And of course, these elitists weren't really clean themselves. As I said, they were like whitewashed tombs. They had the appearance of sterility. They had the appearance of purity on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones on the inside. Their legalistic disinfectant was making them sicker. It wasn't making them better like the antibacterial soaps that just got pulled off the market. They were making us sicker, not better. Their legalistic, the Pharisees' legalistic disinfectant was making them sicker. And so Jesus comes and he confronts this entire system. This, this whole thing can't sustain itself. This whole thing has to be opposed. And he's got he's to hit it right uh, in the middle. He's got he's to hit it right in the nose. And so Jesus does that by doing what was previously impossible. Under the old covenant and before Jesus, death spreads corruption spreads. But now with Jesus, life spreads. Death and corruption do not spread to Jesus, but rather death and corruption and all manner of evil spirits flee from Jesus. 
So Jesus has no hesitation in touching the unclean. Jesus has no hesitation in going across the Sea of Galilee to Gentile territory and addressing and, and, and delivering a man who has unclean spirits, who's in a conquered Roman territory, who lives among the tombs. Jesus has no hesitation. Why? It's because this corruption is not going to spread to Jesus. Life spreads from Jesus outward. So the expectation was, well, Jesus is going to go become defiled, but healing and life come from him. The prophet Haggai addresses this in in that well-known passage. Haggai asked the priest in his day, he says, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and the edge of the holy meat, you know, the holy sacrificial meat that'd be set aside for the Levites, and, and and the meat touches bread or stew, wine or oil, Will holiness spread to the thing that it touched? Will the wine or the oil or the bread or the stew now become holy? And the priest answered, no, that's not how that works. And then Haggai says, well, okay, well, if, if I touch a, a dead body and I become unclean and I touch any one of those things, do they become unclean? Well, the answer is what? Absolutely. Those things shall be unclean. So see, if something holy under the old covenant, if something holy touches something corrupt, unclean, what becomes unclean? What, which direction does the corruption spread? The corrupt uh, thing corrupts the holy thing. Corruption, death spread under Adam. If, if the holy thing touches the unclean thing, uh, the unclean thing does not become holy. So uh, corruption spread, life didn't. But now with Jesus, now everything with Jesus is different. Now we see with Jesus holiness and life and blessing spreads. And now we have two stories in front of us this morning where we see this demonstrated. The gospel writers give these two stories together. They always give them to us like a donut. Matthew, Mark, and Luke always have the story of Jairus and his daughter on the outside. And the middle is the woman with the issue of blood. And these two stories are always told together because they happened at the same time on the same day. And the two stories inform each other and color each other. Uh, They they are uh, inseparable. One of the stories is about the death of a little girl and her resurrection by Jesus. The other story is about a woman who has an unstoppable hemorrhage. Both are females, obviously. The length of the woman's illness is how long? 12 years. How old is the little girl? She's, she's 12. This woman has been sick the entire life of this little girl. And in both cases, both with the woman and the girl, Jesus comes into contact with uncleanness. The bleeding woman and the dead body of the child, these are both unclean. But in both cases, the life and health and purity and blessing that Jesus brings overwhelms the curse of Adam. So we see Jesus is now returning to Galilee after his trip to the Gadarenes where he healed the demon-possessed man. And just as soon as he gets back to uh, uh, his home territory, everybody's just pressing him. Everybody is surrounding him. The multitude is so dense that he and his uh, uh, disciples have to kind of force their way through the crowd and try to just take, you know, step at a time and try to try to wedge their way through when suddenly Jesus feels that some power has gone out of him. That has always uh, tripped me up. 
my, my brain kind of fizzles and sparks a little bit. What does that mean? And what does that show us about the deity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ that in some way he knew or felt that power had gone out of him? I don't have an answer for that. But I wonder if this feeling of this power going out of him is one of the reasons at the end of the day, you see he's always so exhausted, right? It's this, it's work, it's constant work. Even if, if somebody uh, is touching him uh, and, and he doesn't do it um, uh, deliberately, there's still, there's still something going out of him. But anyway, I, I can't, maybe you have some ideas and can share them with me, but that's a question I have. What did Jesus, what exactly did he feel and, and how did he know and, and what did he know about this? But, but anyway, he, he does, he feels somebody touch him. He feels uh, a power depart from him. And then he turns around and he says, who touched me? Now the apostles, I mean, just imagine the thickest crowd you've ever been in. Have you ever been in a crowd where you just like walk, just, you know, taking little steps where the crush of humanity is around you? The apostles say, who touched you? Seriously, did you just ask who touched you? That's like asking the running back on the bottom of a pile, you know, whose knee is in your ribs? I don't know. Any one of these 14 guys, it could be any one of them. Jesus eventually looks around, everybody, no, I didn't, I didn't touch you, I didn't touch you, and he finds this woman trembling. And he finds out she's this woman who has this flow of blood for 12 years, and she spent all of her money on doctors who have not made things better, but who have made things worse. You know, Luke is a doctor. Uh, we find out later in the epistles that Luke is a doctor, and um, you know, you, you almost think, I wonder if he had this little grin when he wrote that. You know, these doctors of Galilee, man, they didn't make her better. They made her worse. Well, they did. And her last hope is to get close enough to Jesus to perhaps receive some blessing from him. And so she touches the hem of his garment, which, as we read back in our Ruth study, every Israelite had four corners of his garment, and on each corner was a tassel with a blue thread. And then we read about Jesus, the coming of Messiah, that he will rise with healing in his wings, in the wings of his garment. We read all about the the symbolism of the wing of Boaz's garment as he spread it over Ruth and how Yahweh spread his wing over Ruth. All of that comes into uh, into play here. We won't go back uh, through all of that today, but keep all of that in mind that now she touches and receives the healing, the protection, the oversight, the care, the comfort of Jesus, just as Boaz provided it for Ruth. That same, that same little symbolism is in play here, and it's all, it's all there. Uh, maybe she thought, though, that she could just touch, as, as he passed, if I could just wait, and if I could just touch the, the tassel, the hem, the wing of his garment as he goes by, maybe I won't create a fuss. I don't want to be the center of attention. I'm just at the end of my rope. I've been suffering from this thing for 12 years. 12 years is a long time. I'm so sick of being sick. I'm so sick of being tired. I'm so sick of not being productive. I'm sick of being cut off from the life of my people. And I just want to touch his garment. I just want to see if that, see if that works. And now that Jesus calls her out, she seems terrified. She's trembling, Luke says. Why is she afraid? Does she think, well, did I do something wrong? Because under the law, her bleeding has made her unclean. And in her condition, under the law, she shouldn't be touching anybody. 
In fact, because of this, for 12 years, she's been cut off from the annual cycle of sacrifices and feasts in Israel. You know what that means? That means no Passover. That means no Pentecost. That means no Feast of Booths. In that era, she couldn't even approach the holy city of Jerusalem. Just imagine that. You're sick. And the way that you're sick in the place where you live means no Thanksgiving. It means no Christmas. It means no Easter. That's, that's, the, that's what's been imposed upon you because of your sickness. And that's where this woman has been living. That's been her life for 12 years. But now, because she has reached out and touched the wing of the garment of Jesus, there is healing, there is cleanness, and therefore, she is going to have complete restoration of Yahweh and complete restoration to the community with all the blessings of the covenant. And so when he looks at her, she falls down before him and she tells him the whole story. See, Jesus wanted to see her. Now, he at the same time is God and man. He's the sovereign uh, God who, who knows that she needs to be drawn out. This doesn't need to be a secret. Maybe she wanted to be very understated, but this kind of thing doesn't need to be a secret. Everybody needs to know and see that she has been healed. She has been cleansed so that she can be restored in the sight of everyone. He calls her daughter. You know how many people Jesus calls daughter in his ministry? One. (laughs) He only calls one woman daughter, and it's this woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The physical healing has already taken place, but there's this greater affliction that's still going to be healed. The, The affliction of being unclean, the affliction of being an outcast is being healed. Her corruption has not spread to Jesus, but his life, his purity has spread to her. Now, of course, when Jesus, when Jesus arrived, there was a, a leader of the synagogue who, who came to him um, to, uh, to say, you know, my, my, uh, daughter, uh, my daughter is dead. My, my daughter is dying. And, and Jesus is on his way. He could have he just kept going. He didn't have to stop and tend to this woman. And this woman is nowhere near as influential or affluent as Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And so no one would have batted an eye if Jesus had just marched on to Jairus' house and ignored whoever touched him and not paid attention. But Jesus does stop. And he does take this moment with her. Just as Jairus is deeply concerned about his daughter, so Jesus is concerned about this daughter of his. This is a daughter of Zion who's been cut off. And nothing that the scribes and the Pharisees or the doctors nothing they could do could restore her. The doctors had tried to do what they could because they were being paid, but yet here is Jesus doing what none of them could do. Even if they had tried every day for another 12 years, none of them could rejoin her to Israel. And not just the old Israel. No, she's a member of the new Israel that Jesus is forming, which is made up of tax collectors and fishermen and the formerly demon-possessed and the Gentile and the lame and the, the blind and the broke and the unclean. See, this was the nature of Jesus' miracles. One thing he's doing, he's showing, I am am the heir of a long line of of prophetic ministry in Israel. So I have this connection to the Old Testament prophets, but everything I do is greater than the Old Testament prophets. So Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. 
there was a time where Elisha uh, fed uh, a hundred men with a few loaves of bread. Jesus feeds 5,000. Everything that Jesus does is, is bigger and more glorious. But there's this other element of Jesus' ministry and his miraculous works. It's about bringing into Israel those who were socially and ceremonially cut off. They're on the outside looking in. And so Jesus, in doing these things, he shows Israel, you know what? This is you. You're on the outside looking in. Here with me, this is the new people. This, these, this is the new Israel. You, unless you are restored, unless you are cleansed by me, you are cut off. You are at arm's length. And I am the only remedy to bring you near. Well, as Jesus stopped and attended to this woman, someone from Jairus' house came with the news that the little girl, in the meantime, had passed away. When they learned that the girl died, this weight of despair falls on the company as they say, you know, why, why should we bother Jesus any further? Here again, people are imposing limits on Jesus on what they think he can and can't do. Jesus has cast out demons. He, he stopped storms. He just healed this woman. But this other thing that we're asking for, this is out of reach. That's out of bounds. He's not able to do that. But at the same time, who can really blame them for feeling this way? These other things he's done, these are all wonderful displays of his power. But you and I know that dead is dead. Death is a one-way street. You don't come back. And so uh, the people from Jairus' house are full of despair. And they just say, don't. Don't bother. Don't bother Jesus. We're just, we're just heartbroken now. But Jesus tells them, don't fear. Don't fear. Only believe. And he takes Peter and James and John with them. When he gets to the house, he finds this whole crowd wailing and weeping. It's such a heartbreaking scene. And, you know, when a, when a child passes, this is, not, this is not a happy home right now. And Jesus says, why, why such a commotion? This child is not dead. She's only sleeping. He doesn't say she's sleeping because he has knowledge. Well, she's just in a coma. He doesn't say she's sleeping because, well, she's still breathing, but it's so shallow. I know, I know why you would uh, think she was dead. No, that's not what's going on. Jesus saying she's sleeping in the sense that she's about to get up. She's sleeping in the, se- in the sense that her, her, her morning is coming. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians? He, he wants us to think of the saints who've past, he says, he he talks about them as those who sleep, right? Before their resurrection. They're going to wake up. They're going to live again as well. Just as Jesus has risen, so they too will rise. And so that's what, in what sense Jesus is using the word sleep. But everyone ridicules Jesus when he says that. So he says, okay, y'all get out. Everybody outside, only mom and dad, the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, mom and dad, everybody else, everybody else outside. And he goes into the room where the child lies and he takes her by the hand. Remember, touching a corpse makes you unclean, but not not for Jesus, not for him. Death and corruption do not flow to him. Life flows from him. And as soon as he says, little girl, arise, immediately the little girl wakes up and she gets up and she walks This is not one of those deals where Jesus says, little girl, arise. 
And then in a slumber, you know, she wakes up and she's still got pneumonia and she's still racked with disease. And she rolls over and stares at the wall. And it's another month before she can take a step, before she's strong enough. No, she is completely restored to life at the word of Jesus. She has full health. The way that this woman a few minutes ago was completely restored to full fellowship in Israel. The girl gets up off the bed. She runs into the arms of her mother and father. And the child that was lost for only a moment is once again alive. Whatever affliction, whatever whatever disease had tormented her body was gone. And then Jesus concludes this scene with this very incredibly spiritual, deeply theological instruction. He says this, give her something to eat. It's so deep and so profound that the people are overwhelmed and overjoyed and beside themselves, and he says, you know what, you gotta, you got to take care of her immediate needs. Jesus knows she's hungry. You know, I don't know, I've never been resurrected. How hungry do you get after a resurrection? How, how starving must she be? But more than that, this is an important statement that Jesus is making here. Even though she has just been delivered by this miraculous providence to bring her back to life, From now on, she's going to continue to need the daily, ordinary providences of God to keep her alive, to sustain her life. This miracle doesn't give her any kind of exceptional status from here on out, where she kind of glows all the time and she doesn't need to eat and she's transcended, you know, cuts and bruises. That's, that's not the case at all. She's going to need food and water and warmth and she's still going to get colds and she's still going to uh, stub her toe. She's going to need normal sustenance throughout the rest of her natural life. And one day again, she's going to die until she is finally resurrected uh, in the new creation. So, so there's something there. Just as you and I have been resurrected to new life, just as the old man has died, just as we have been regenerated, just as we have joined to Jesus, we still need to eat. We still need the daily, ordinary, continual providences and sustenance of God every day. So here we have two daughters, both cut off and both restored by Jesus. This is who he came for. All who are unclean, all who are in Adam, all who are dead, all, all who, who are cut off ritually and covenantally, all of these He has come for to make them whole, make them alive and joined to him who is our life. Now, three quick thoughts about this before we, uh, before we close today. Um, In, in both of these accounts, we have a couple of very simple expressions of faith. Think about this. Jairus, the girl's dad comes to Jesus in a crisis and we might say, you know, we can sit back in our leather chair and we can read this with a comfortable, safe remove and say, you know what, is, is that real faith? Honestly, come on, is that real faith? If you're only coming to Jesus when you need something, is that, is that legitimate? And when the woman reaches out and touches Jesus's robe, we might say, she touched his robe? You know, why didn't she just ask? That, is that, isn't that kind of superstitious to touch his robe? His robe doesn't have any power, does it? It's not a magic robe, right? Now, now, if we were there, we might not make these statements directly to them, but we might, we might think 
we might think them in our hearts. Or we may say, well, these are in the Bible, so they get a pass, but Jesus doesn't rebuke them, so it must be okay. But think of how many types of things you run into like that in the Bible. In the book of Acts, people take handkerchiefs from Paul and lay them on the sick and on the demon-possessed, and they pray for them, and they're healed. And we think, well, that's superstitious. You know, take a handkerchief and lay it on. What, what's going on? Or... Some people are healed when Peter's shadow passes over them. In Matthew 14, we read again how the crowds were pressing on Jesus just to reach out and touch his garment for blessing. Now for us, we think, oh, that's so, that's so mystical. That's so weird. That's so superstitious. And honestly, I'm not even sure what to do with every one of these uh, cases all the time. However, here's what we can be confident in. This woman's faith was obviously not in thinking that Jesus had a magic robe, right? Her faith was in Jesus's power to heal her. And Jairus, uh, yeah, he's in a crisis. You would be too if your daughter was dying. Yeah, he's in a crisis. But he goes to the right place for healing. These, these very simple, you could say childlike, you could say immature acts of faith lead to blessing and life, and healing. And so you and I, we, we can't be quick to condemn simple expressions of faith by those who haven't figured everything out the way that we have. In fact, many times the unlearned and the immature express uh, their faith. They possess a humility and a guilelessness that we don't have. And it's quite possibly that, that we could learn some things from them. So, so just something to think about. Don't, don't rule out and don't, don't quench those little sparks, those little embers of faith like we see and we continue to see in Luke's gospel. Secondly, I want to reflect for just a minute on the role of suffering and sickness in the lives of these two people. We see Christ's mercies in healing the woman and in raising the daughter. But wouldn't it have been more merciful if the woman had never been sick? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been honestly more merciful if the little girl had never had to suffer this way? If God had never ordained their suffering in the first place, wouldn't that be much better? Wouldn't that be a happier story? Well, we can't ask her, we can't ask this woman, but if it were not for this condition that she had for 12 years, she would have never had this encounter with Jesus. And she might have never seen that it's not only her body that needs healing, but that it's her spirit that is, a, is cut off. It's her spirit. It's her life. She, her, her entire being needs restoration. Her whole, her whole being is unclean. And were it not for the sickness that brought her to Jesus on this day, she might have never known that eternal restoration to fellowship with, with the body and with, with the Lord God. So, so is, is, is that why God ordained this? And, and not only for the girl, would, would, would her father, who's a leader in a synagogue, and we didn't even explore that this morning, but, but the synagogue and Jesus are at odds at this point in his ministry. And, 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 if, and if it weren't for this girl's sickness, would her father have ever left his loyalty to the synagogue and put his faith in Jesus were it not for her sickness and her death? This is the kind of trade you and I need to be ready to make any day. You know what? I'll take a day or a month or a year or 10 years or 12 years of affliction 
if it's going to work out for me an eternal weight of glory. Whatever inconvenience or whatever condition or whatever illness or whatever calamity or whatever distress or whatever sorrow God sends our way in his wisdom, in his providence, we can never look at it and say, you know what, God, it would have been much more merciful if you had never let this happen. Yeah, I want your mercies. I need your blessing. But you know what? Lord, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but you're really putting me through it right now. And, and, and if, if you had never let this happen, that would have been way more merciful, honestly, if you want to hear what I think about it. But by sending me this, you know, we, we, we have to think, what is he giving me? In giving me this to deal with, what great blessing, what great weight of glory is he giving me by giving me this to deal with? What opportunities do I have now that I never would have had before? What blessing? We, we always have to be prepared and willing to make this swap, to exchange present comfort and present control and present fun for future reward. And that's the exchange that happens in both of these lives. Yeah, sure. Maybe the woman would have never had had this sickness, but maybe she would have never had this encounter with Jesus. Maybe this little girl would have never got sick, but maybe Jairus would have never left the synagogue and and loved the Lord Jesus. (coughs) Lastly, whenever we see Jesus acting this way and working, he's showing his people what they are to do. And this reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that to us has been committed the ministry of reconciliation. Just as Jesus restored the outcast to fellowship, just as he spread purity to the unclean, so must we. This is our job. We're not to be the kind of people who are elitists in our sterility and purity, who never get our hands dirty with those who are outcasts of any kind. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. And we have to figure out how to get over ourselves and love them too. To love the unlovable. How do we restore them to life just as Jesus did? How do we do that in his name? Despite however unclean or, or uncouth they are, how do we bring them into fellowship with Jesus and his people? What do we spread as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does corruption spread from us with our words, with our, with our deeds? Do we spread death with our attitudes? Or does life issue from us? Do our words and actions restore just as Jesus' words and actions restored and gave life? I'll leave that with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon us in this place. We ask you to take to heart the things that we have seen Jesus do. And we ask you to continue to, uh, by your spirit, cause us to meditate on all that Jesus is and all that he has done. We thank you that you have given us life. We thank you that you have restored us who are once far off and cut off from all blessing in life. And now may we be your ministers of reconciliation to a world that is still cut off from fellowship with you. We ask this in the name of of our Savior Jesus. Amen.